dealing with this topic of the maturing saint, we have to run through the Old Testament to understand it in correct context. Uh, one of the problems uh, with saints not being able to mature is a misunderstanding of the Old Testament and what's happening with these Old Testament saints. Um, there is a issue that reached as far as Okmulgee, Oklahoma, about um, saints, the Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and um, maturation and all of that. And so this is kind of what I grew up with, hearing this kind of thing. And so you run across this guy, Louis Burkhoff. Ever heard of that guy? Doesn't sound familiar? He may not sound familiar, but his theology, I'm sure you've been affected by. You probably don't have never heard of this guy, but his theology is everywhere. Yes. He was the dean of Reformed theologians back in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, he has infected a lot of theology in America and abroad, really. Um, And so this is what I call the Reformed view of sin. And so they believe that there is this eternal moral code and it just runs all the way through. And, um, and it, with that, they believe that all things are the same. That there's consistency from the Old Testament to the New Testament. They would not see that there's the distinctions that we see in Scripture. And so all things are just kind of uniform. God has not changed what he's done. He's not changing what he's doing. Uh, it's not doing anything different than what he's al- always done. Um, Old Testaments have the same content of salvation that we have. They were regenerated just like we are today. And so all of these things are just pretty consistent. And this is why I believe the church is in the state that it's in. Is this kind of theology has affected the church tremendously. You may not know the guy's name, but I'm sure you have been affected by his theology. You have been affected by his theology. And you don't understand that this is where it's coming from. And so you have this kind of atmosphere that is in place. And so when you get to the Old Testament, we have to look and see what is being said and make clear distinctions about what is going on. And one of the things that you'll find is that the Old Testament saints had a kind of righteousness and they could do some wonderful things, but they cannot do what you and I can do today. I don't care who you trot out, be it Moses, Abraham, Job, name any of them, and they do not have the capacity to do what you and I can do today. Not one single one of them. Now, two things can happen from that. You can just jump for joy and say, boy, we've got it better than them. And I think I've heard that somewhere before in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. We do have something better. But think about it. The fact that we have something better, I'm not, I'm not so sure that we are responding any better than they did. I sometimes wonder if they did not utilize what they had better than we're utilizing what we have today. It's really interesting, but that's just my opinion on it, with where the church is. Um, so you have guys like this, and they believe that. So I gave you two charts, and I just because we're not going to be able to have time to go through all of it, I wanted to give you a general view of some of the distinctions between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. So you can look in a couple of places, as we've noted on page um, two, 
that there are uh, some Old Testament saints, and you can see incidences when it says that they were considered perfect, or they were righteous in their time. And so those things should be seen in the context for what they are. They're a little distinct from what we see the word that is used in the New Testament. And let's look at a couple and then we'll go to the chart. Look at uh, Genesis 6-9 as an example. So here you see in Genesis 6 chapter 9 you see Noah. Um, and during this time uh, on the other side uh, uh, before the flood uh, you have this issue going on. Now, a lot of people have said, and, you know, I'm still trying to find the origin of where the sons of Seth came from. I've not been able to trace it back. The sons of Seth. The sons of Seth in Genesis 6. And so there are people who will believe that in Genesis 6, that the sons of God were not spirit beings. They believe that the sons of, of God were actually that there was a godly line that God had preserved and they came from the sons of Seth and that the sons of Seth, which was the godly line, intermingled with the rest of the mankind and then they produced these offspring. I mean, it's an interesting story, but there is no origin for that in Scripture. You cannot find any place in Scripture where that you will find that. And I've heard people, in fact, J. Vernon McGee, I heard him on the radio once, and I think he was about to have a stroke. <laughs> he was so angry that anybody would say this, that, no, not that they would say that uh, the statement about the sons of Seth, he was angry that anybody would think that these sons of God were um, angels. He actually believed the son of Seth, the sons of Seth theory or premise. And even though there's no place to prove that. And so just for the record, we do believe that the, Sons of God here are angels, and you can see that throughout Scripture. We can prove that in so many different ways. I mean, Jude, First Peter, Second Peter, there's so many different ways you can prove that. It's just, I've always found it interesting that people would take the alternative view because you can't prove that. No place you can prove it from Scripture whatsoever. Yes? The exact expression, the sons of God, the Hebrew expression is only used about four times. Right. Exactly. Twice, twice in one verse in Genesis 6. Right, it's never used in the Old Testament. Right, so you have these fallen angels, I mean, who are seen as the sons of God, and so they they cohabitate with these uh, with women during that time, and they produce these offspring that we see not only before the flood, but on the other side of the flood as well. And so notice um, verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also flesh, uh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. I think it was Don when we were going through that evangelism class talked about some of the these different offsprings of these uh, be, these uh, this relationship. 
Uh, and there, there are many where you can look to see that. In those days and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of uh, really, you could say men of a reputation. And God saw that the wickedness or the evil of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And it uh, repented uh, the Lord or really he had a change of attitude that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air for repented me that I have made them. But Noah found, and I would say favor, or you can say that he actually looked for and got favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, and notice, perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And so you have a lot going on here, and in order to make this harmonize, with New Testament truth, you would have to do a lot of allegorizing to do it. And you have to really have a good imagination, and I've never really had one. So it was really hard for me to preach messages in the context of the place that I grew up. My imagination wasn't that wild. But I knew guys who had a really good imagination. They could take a text and make you think, it, they'd make it walk on all fours. <laughs> They would, in fact, dance across the table like a bun. <laughs> and so <laughs> they had that ability to do that. But you really would have to have a good imagination. And so when it says that Noah walked with God, he literally walked with God. He didn't walk with him in his thinking or his imagination. He literally found and walked with the second person of the Godhead. He could walk with him. And so this is something that uh, we're not able to do today, so we, we probably wouldn't understand that. But the thing here, this idea of perfect, and so I picked this out because we're going to see this word again as we get to the New Testament, and I want you to know it's totally different from what we're going to see. And so you see, I give this word perfect. Uh, we got a couple of words that it translates that in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, you have tamim, and then you have salom. And then I give you these definitions here. And... Uh, and you can see it in a couple of places. It's the same thing is said of Job and, and the first chapter of Job. But the thing I wanted to point out is how different this is. And I just wanted to give you a graphic illustration of it through a chart. And I gave you a couple of charts. And hopefully we can actually show you uh, how different this is. So as you look at the Old Testament saint, well, you really have the Old Testament. And then these guys are, I would call, really pre-Old Testament saints because they existed before law, right? They were before law. And so now, but even through that, if you go all the way back through, you'll see these distinctions that are different between, say, the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. And I just wanted to run down through some of these. So you have uh, physiological changes. Dan mentioned it last hour. They were not regenerated. Now, this is a, a problem for a lot of people. <coughs> Because they say, well, we're regenerated. Um, that they should be, they, how did they do what they did? And so they say they have to have been able to be regenerated in order to act in the way that they did. So they have to be regenerated. 
And then when you look at regeneration is and the fact that we've been renewed by the spirit of our mind, that the Holy Spirit's indwelling us, that the Son is indwelling us, that the Father is indwelling us, and they had not one of those things. Not one single solitary one of those things. Yeah. And what's really rather strange is when they say we, they had to be renewed, regenerated to do the things they did. If you take the Old Testament literally and look at the things they did, and again, say a person could have done those things. Sure. They couldn't. You look at what uh, Jacob and his, you know, what Jacob and Esau and what uh, was going on there with Jacob and his mom, the naked they put on. That's not something you have to... No, but I think that they would go to uh, Hebrews 11 and they would see the acts that were done there. And the thing that's different that you would see is that they were able to perform certain acts, but they didn't have the ability to consistently live in a way that you and I can live today. You see? Completely different. They didn't have the potential or the ability to be able to do that. And we're not saying that there wasn't some... Uh, divine involvement in them being able to do those acts, right? But we're saying that they were not they were not regenerated in a way to produce a consistent life like you and I can do today, not at all. And we'll see that. Now, why is this important? Because if you think that you are on the same plane as the Old Testament saint, and you try to take the promises and the kind of life that they live and trying to emulate it, you're emulating something that is inferior than what you have today. And this is a real problem today. This is a serious problem today. And I think it's one of the problems that is, that is really stumbling believers from growing and maturing. And so you got a lot of saints either consciously or subconsciously who are trying to emulate and be like Old Testament saints. And they're alone themselves. I'll give you an example, uh, and this is an extreme example because it's uh, from the Pentecostal church. And so there's a guy that I was working with and he says uh, he'd like to do the holy dance. And I said, okay. A holy dance? Holy dance. A holy dance. Yes. And he says, well, what's wrong with it? David danced before the Lord. <clears throat> I would like to do one too. I just sure. <laughs> well, there's a lot that could be said about that, right? Yeah, I don't <laughs> but but none, of them would, none of them would explain why you as a believer should be doing that today. That you're, you're completely different from that. Uh, I think Don has talked about a lot about David having some uh, desire to have a, a different kind of heart, right? And, and, and uh, Psalms 51, as you saw it, but the, 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 to put it in short, their, the, the content of what they had is so different from you and I that it's not even close. And it's not because you and I are better. It's because of what God is doing today and what he's revealing today. I think one thing you could actually say uh, to show people the difference is compare 1 John 1 9 with Psalm 51 and look at the difference. What we do to confess our sin, but look at what David went through in confessing his. Right, right. So if you compare the two and say, you, would you want to have to go through that when you sin? But that was really the, not the assurance that's there today. He had no assurance at the end of it all, anyway. So,
So look at these. So what, what, what I want to just run down through these, and then we'll, we'll get on to uh, the word for perfection. Uh, distinguishing provisions of saints, Old Testament, so they weren't regenerated. The rule of life, you had law, then you had obviously before then, uh, and then but by and large law, grace. And it's not that uh, they didn't have grace, but we talk, we've talked about before they had favor, and, it's, and that was a little bit different. Relationship to God, to the Godhead, they were separated from God uh, and dwelt by all three members of the Godhead. And so you can see even in the Gospels that um, none of these Old Testament saints at that point in time had been indwelt by the Godhead. So, for example, in uh, John seven thirty nine, at the great day of the feast, the Lord is in the uh, temple and he says, all who believe in me. That from, uh, from uh, his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And it says, this he said of the Holy Spirit, which was coming, which had not yet come. Okay, I think I got it, but let me show you exactly what it says. 739, John 739. So it says in verse 38, he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. For this spake he of the spirit which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here you have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the Holy Spirit like you and I have today. I mean, sometimes we're hard on those guys and we say, well, why come those guys didn't get it? I mean, how many times did he tell them that he was going to go or die, be buried and raised again? And it says they understood none of these things. Right. And so they didn't have the um, Holy Spirit indwelling them, illuminating them in the way that you and I have today. Uh, the life was manifested. This word for Hebrew word for life, you could see throughout the Old Testament, they had a kind of life, uh, but not this life. And we can see that in the, in the future, uh, um, Mark 10.30. Let's turn there as an example. Mark 10.30. So we use this as a line of demarcation that during Christ's earthly ministry, they did not have eternal life. They were looking to get that eternal life in the future. So notice in verse 20, we'll, we'll start with verse uh, 25. It is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, With men it is impossible, but, with God, uh, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all. And that, when I really say here, all things. They left all things. So just as an aside, if you are going to follow Christ, this is what they did. They left everything to follow him. So let's get it right. Let's not say we're following him in our hearts. Or we're following him in our minds. If you're going to follow him, you have to first find him then you have to leave everything, family, everything. Notice what he's going to say here. We have left all things uh, and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that has left house or brethren or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, 
but that he shall receive a hundredfold now and in uh, this time houses, brethren, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the, notice not the word world, but in the age to come, they had an expectation that they would receive eternal life. They had an expectation that they were going to receive it in the age to come. They didn't have it then. Well, if you're going to get something in the future, do you have it at the time that you're expecting it? They did not have it. But you and I have it now, 1 John 5, 11. And how do we have that life? As a result of the fact that the Son is indwelling each and every one of us. He imparts that life to us. But these are crucial statements, are crucial things to understand in understanding about maturation. They couldn't do it. They didn't have the equipment to do it. You and I are fully equipped. You ever watch that... Uh, What's that? Uh, oh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, what was the thing that he used to be the monster that he came down? Terminator. Yeah, that's what that was. It. So, yeah, he was a monster. And so he was the old Terminator, and then they came out with a new Terminator that was sleeker and better and faster. <laughs> right? A newer model that could do more than Arnold Schwarzenegger could dream about doing, right? And, and they had the capacity to be able to do that. And so in a similar way, you have that with believers. Because of what God is doing today is so distinctly different. You and I have the capacity to do things the Old Testament saints could only dream about. And it's just astonishing because we don't always live it out. But just because we don't live it out don't mean that that capacity is not there. And so, uh, sin nature, they had a sin nature. And, uh, and so, I put the question mark here because, yes, I think that they were aware of their sin nature to a degree. Um, David used the word, I win, in the 51st chapter of Psalms, where he says, my perversities are greater than I can bear. Right? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, I'm sorry, um, Cain. Yeah. But uh, David used it also in Psalms 51. So there was something, and they understood something about a bent of nature that caused them to do twisted things. But I don't know that they understand it like we understand it today. They had limited knowledge of Satan. It's funny, as you go back through the Old Testament, there are some instances of Satan. What they understood about him, though, is not near what you and I understand about him today. There's way more revelation about Satan and what he's doing today than they could ever understand. Uh, and then the world system. I, I don't know. You look at Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He understood something about this thing that he was participating in and all of the stuff he tried to partake in. But did he understand it the way that you and I understand it today? I don't think he did. They had a lot of knowledge, probably more about that, but I don't think that they, they understood it. Then the knowledge that they had was fragmented. We see in 1 Corinthians 10 that it was mostly in typology. We can come back today and we have not only order knowledge, we can know the facts about what happened. God is allowing us to look over, I like to say this, look over his shoulder today and look at more information about what's going on than these guys could, they could dream about.
not only do we know the facts about it, we can actually understand it and we can actually grow in that understanding and have a fuller understanding of it. Um, their spiritual status, they were blinded. We could see that in 2 Corinthians 3 of the nation of Israel. They were immature. They were immature. Not one Old Testament saint. So I'm going to say this and it's going to be astonishing. Maybe to some of you. Not one Old Testament saint could mature in the way that you can today. Not one of them. Not one single solitary one of them. Go back, point out any one of, one of them. And they don't have, didn't have the capacity to mature like you do today. The power of action. They walk by faith. Um, you know, we have the Holy Spirit today that is able to cause us to do unbelievable things that they, could, they couldn't do. And so the other um, chart that I gave you. Now, this one, you know, I... I mean, was, I tried to make a distinction here again between their capabilities, and then I included these uh, pre-Old Testament saints here, and they would be from the uh, from um, the unregenerate from the fall of Adam to the Old Testament, and I would be as they were given the law. Then you have the Old Testament saints, then you have the New Testament saints, and so you look at again salvation. Somebody um, accused us at one point of trying to say that we were teaching ways, different ways of salvation, but it's not true. All we've always said is that all men of each dispensation are always saved by four things, by God, by grace, through faith. But what they believe to be saved, you will see, is different in every dispensation. Now, you would have to, again, do gyrations and allegorization to prove differently. Now, I've showed people, and you can just see it very easily over in Revelation, the 14th chapter, when you come to the tribulation period, there's a different gospel that are going to be, that's going to be preached in the, in the tribulation period. When people don't want to, oh, they don't like it. They don't like the fact that God can change what he does. Well, guess what? He's in control and not you and I. They don't like it. They want God to be the same and to do the same thing all the way through. And if he changes one iota, they've got a problem with it. And then they've got to come to the rescue, right, to help God out by allegorizing to kind of fix this. Because God's messed it up. <laughs> the excuse I heard, the reason people didn't like it that I heard, was they said that you're demeaning the work of Christ. You're making it just not enough. It's not enough. You're saying there's some other thing they have to believe. They don't understand it. They'll say, you're having them believe something else. You're demeaning the gospel. And to that end, what we'll say is that in Romans, the third chapter, and verse 25, Paul explains it this way, right? God was always saving men on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. From the Old Testament all the way through, what is the distinction? What did, what did they know? You see, they knew nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not one single solitary thing. And you can just, I can point that out. That I can prove through Scripture. I can prove that from the Old Testament um, all the way through to the New Testament. They did not know it. So if you would have asked Abraham about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he would not have understood what you were talking about. In fact, I know for a fact he wouldn't have because we have a scripture in the Galatians, the third chapter, that tells us what was the good news that he believed, that through his single seed, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. That's what he believed. So, yes. Pastor, for someone hearing this for the first time, 
your distinction there is critical. The, he is saving them on the basis of God is saving them on the basis of a sacrifice that Christ is going to make, but the thing they believe, the content, it's different from each dispensation. And so you can and so it's gotten a little silly, right? And so we want to justify Christ as being the object of the salvation and that they're they're understanding it. And uh, and so you've heard people. I, I think Dr. Schaefer used the illustration of uh, Rahab and the little rope that they let over and people believe. And I haven't read that. If you guys read that. That this rope was red. Oh yeah, the scarlet. Right, and it was symbolic of the um, the blood of Christ. Yeah. And so this it gets it, you get into territory where you are trying to prove something that you cannot prove from Scripture, it's and what it becomes. Literature. Right. Right. And so you have all of this, and why is this important? It's important because God is doing something different today. Your ability to mature is so different than anything that has come before this dispensation. And you see consistently that this is being watered down and muddied. And it would be like you taking math and science and, out and uh, reading and just jumbling it all together and teaching it as one discipline. And I think it's confusing the saints. Amen. And so as you let Scripture say what it says, what you will see is that God dealt with those Old Testament and pre-Old Testament saints in a different way than he's dealing with the church today. You know what this is like? It's like the people who say, we must, there must be other people out in the universe because there can't be, it can't be that the earth is the only place where God has put life. Well, what if he did? You have a problem with it? What if he just created the rest of this universe and it's just dressing for this little earth? Do you have a problem? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You know, and that's kind of what people are. They don't like what God is doing. Well, what about what you do? What, if, what about when someone questions what you do? What do you do? You won't have it. I guarantee you, you won't have it. You'd get upset. And why, you're not going to question me. Who do you think you are? Now imagine that with relationship to God. And these little penny beings trying to question how he's operating his decree. This is just nonsense. And what it does when we do that and what is happening in the church, it's, it's undermining the uniqueness of what God is doing in this dispensation of grace. And I believe what he's doing is through this maturation and the believers building each other up and the believers living out a life in this world, as um, the scripture that you pointed out, Dan, in that communication in First Timothy 2. Did you see the other side of that? That prayers and all of these different communications be made for men and, and those in authority. And what was the result of that? That we might live out a quiet and peaceable life. Now, those Old Testament saints weren't living out a quiet and peaceable life. They were engaged in murder. I mean, well, I don't say murder, but <laughs> a lot of mayhem. Well, they had songs written about them. Saul has killed his thousands. David his tens of thousands. That's not what we're called to do today. 
really. It's, it's completely different. And so really getting believers to see that is a huge thing. And so spiritual maturity, none. They're blinded, uh, accomplishing Christ. Godliness, this one you have to be careful about because you had that word for godly in the English. It's used all the way through, but it actually translates several different words. And then that godliness is not talking about godliness in the way that we understand it from a New Testament sense. Sense. And so godliness in the New Testament is the fact that the son is indwelling us. You have deity indwelling you and that life can be seen out. So it wasn't possible. Right. In that before the dispensation of grace it wasn't possible that that could happen. Um, holiness under law, national um, individual under grace indwelling. The Holy Spirit came up on them. Right. Up on them. And he could leave. And I guess the greatest example of that was Samson, how the Holy Spirit came and went upon Samson. Uh, as he, the Holy Spirit was upon him. He had great strength. And as the Holy Spirit left him, he was weakling. And I, I joke with Don about this. I do think that, uh, and this is just my opinion, I think that, um, and it would have been like God to do this, Don. I think Samson probably looked more like Pee Wee Herman than Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> really? Why? Because the power was not in Samson's ability, right? Wouldn't it have been ironic if he would look like Pee Wee Herman and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and then he can take the jawbone of an ass and kill a thousand men, right? You wouldn't have expected that, right? And I just think, I don't know. I just see that that's how God works in Scripture. Now notice eternal life, uh, future to these Old Testament saints. Uh, and here you see in Daniel 12 that there is the, the resurrection of those Old Testament saints that they're promised that they're going to get eternal life in the future. After the tribulation period. They don't have eternal life now. You and I have it right now. We're not looking to get eternal life. We have eternal life right now at this moment. Well, let me show you again. I've quoted the verse in 1 John 5, 11. And this is the witness, the word record there is witness in 1 John 5.11, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is where? In his Son. He that has the Son, um, he that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. So you and I have eternal life. Uh, I like the way somebody said it this way. It says, so here it's the Son, he has life in himself. Now, he's indwelling you. What does that give you? You have eternal life because he's indwelling you. So these are all significant things. And I, I, I would suppose we've watered them down so much we don't have a true appreciation for what God is doing today. And they don't really mean anything to us. But I think one day they will mean something to us. And as I say, I think when we get to the Bema Seed Judgment, I wonder if We'll ask for a mulligan. <laughs> a mulligan, did you say? Yes. <laughs> I know we're not going to, but certainly you will. I wonder what we will think when we see what the potential was. How great potential there is for the believer in this dispensation. Everything at our disposal. Everything we need at our disposal. But how often do we utilize it? 
how often is there an appreciation for what God is doing and how distinct it is from any other thing that has come before it. And you can see it in some of these things. And notice they could walk with God. And it was I believe it was in a, in a literal physical way. Um, they could walk in the way of the Lord. And then, and then and today you see this walk with the believer. We're not sitting up looking for God, waiting on a rock for the second for the sun to come down so we can walk with him. Right? But we can walk in a new kind of life. Um, and then you have resurrection life. And, you know, of course, they are looking for it in the future. You know, remember uh, what uh, Martha said to the Lord after the resurrection of Lazarus? I know that the, that he will be raised again, or this is before the resurrection of Lazarus. At the resurrection, when? At the last day. Right? <clears throat> Words matter. They really matter. Amen. And what God do is doing matters. These distinctions matter. And look, we're... We're not any smart guys here. At least I speak for myself. I'm not. But you know what? All you have to do is just let Scripture say what it says, and it becomes very clear what God is doing. And it's very unique what he's doing in this dispensation of grace. Very unique. Not been done before. And interesting enough, I don't see where it's going to be done like this again. Where he's allowing you and I to have his life lived out before unsaved men. This is a very unique opportunity that God is providing in his plan and purpose. It's so unique what he's doing. And so just looking at these distinctions, it's very important to remember that. Uh, and so as we look at this word, for, for example, for perfection, now I do want to jump down, if you would, on your page to see. And the use of perfection in the New Testament indicates, is used to indicate spiritual maturity. But the Greek word teleos is used to indicate perfection, or uh, I would say here is spiritual completion. Now, I'm going to give you several definitions here of, um, and how this word is used of maturity. Lewis Perry Chafer def uh, describes the word um, as spiritual experiences which may extend over a lifetime and involve a growth in knowledge, a continued experience of being filled with the spirit, and a maturity in judgment and in spiritual things. And uh, as I've given you Dr. Schaefer's definition a couple of weeks ago, uh, he would define it this way. The effect of experiential knowledge gained when a believer is spiritual or spirit-filled and acting in any situation in a uh, scriptural manner. And Vines would give it this definition, that which signifies having reached its end or its completion. Actually, that's the word teleos and what it means literally is to, to reach a completion or to reach an end. And it's used a lot. Uh, in different contexts for maturity. Now notice it's used in relationship to spiritual maturity um, uh, only in uh, our the perfection. It's used that way in Pauline epistles. And so let's look, uh, for example, as a, a couple of illustrations of it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> now what's interesting is that um, if you look at Corinth and what was going on there, it was, there's just a lot of things going on there. This is like going down to Midway at a, at a carnival. There's just so many things going on in Corinth. <laughs> and just, well, you have these teachers um, who are teaching things uh, and very skillful in how they're doing it. And just because someone sounds eloquent in what they're saying doesn't mean that what they're saying is true. And so we have a lot of eloquent people 
preaching from the pulpit. Very eloquent people. Uh, but if you listen to what they're saying, it doesn't line up with Scripture. And uh, I could name you a couple, but I'm sure that you already know. And so Paul um, was seen in a certain light at Corinth because of the fact that they didn't see him here. They had gotten caught up into the age. And it's really fascinating some of the things that he says, particularly in the third chapter. And so he's, he talks to them and, uh, and he says uh, over in the second chapter, in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you with, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, I think when Paul came to Corinth, I don't think he's whistling Dixie here. You go back over and you pick it up in the 17th chapter of Acts. And you follow what happened from the time that he left Thessalonica and he goes down into Berea and he goes from Berea down into uh, Athens and then he goes from Athens down into uh, Corinth and there's someone dogging his every steps so that by the time he gets to Corinth, the Lord has to appear to him personally and tell him, stop fearing. And so Paul was uh, really in a bad way when he got into Corinth. So I don't think that he's really whistling Dixie here. And notice what he says in verse 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom. There's Dan's word for really it's the persuasive words of man's wisdom. Wisdom. It's interesting. I, I think some, some of that uh, has that uh, debating. You know, you're, you're trying to convince someone and you're trying to persuade someone with words or you're trying to persuade someone in some kind of a way of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the, in the power from God. Howbeit we do speak a wisdom among them that, see the word perfect there is actually, we speak a wisdom among them that are maturing, yet not the wisdom of this age. Now, it's interesting. He talks about age. Hold your finger there and we'll turn back to the first chapter. I just want to show you something that's really interesting. This is why you have to really be careful. And I try to be careful about, you know, just sticking to scripture because there's a lot of things you can do, but it doesn't mean that everything that you're doing is being led by the Holy Spirit to do it. Right. And it can sound wonderful and great. But what's the origin of it? Notice here. Verse 18, Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But to us, unto us who are being saved, it is a power from God. You can see it in Christendom, right? Everybody's got a little thing that they want to do to try to reach people. Oh, if we just did this, you could bring more people in or you get all of these things that people would like to do. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? He describes three different kinds of entities that are used in the age to advance information in the age. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? The debater of this age, right? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this age? 
And so how do you carry information? How do you advance information? And so the, there's a, the, in the present evil age, there's a whole different methodology that is set up that's running counter to what God desires to do. And there's the temptation to not only involve yourself in it, but for people to follow it. And look, I would, I would say to you, I think that that's where the church is today, really, in a lot of ways. And so notice Paul says, it's not that kind of wisdom that we're, we're speaking, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the princesses of this, um, the princesses uh, or the rulers of this age that are being brought to naught. <laughs> I love that. Um, being rendered inoperable. Operable. Um, and so they're in the process of being rendered inoperable. Uh, being unplugged. Uh, and so you have these um, ones working behind the scenes who are manipulating this whole thing with the age. And it's very attractive to people. It really is. And people get caught up in it. And you can see it. I mean, in our day, I mean, there's, you hear guys and they talk and they sound like they're wise and they tell you how to do this or how to do that. Unfortunately, this scripture is not a part of their equation in a lot of instances. And so he says, we do preach in verse six, not the wisdom of we do preach a wisdom among them that are maturing. And so there is a doctrine that those who are maturing would have an appreciation for. And so, you know, you, you, you don't try to chase people. You don't chase people to try to find out what do people want. You just preach the word. Right. And as people are maturing, the Holy Spirit will illuminate them uh, uh, to the word of God. And that's what it's about. And so I, when we were in Oregon, we were uh, and I'll, I'll stop there. We'll come back next week and pick it up. We uh, there was a church planter that I knew in Oregon and he had planted many churches across the northwest there. And uh, <laughs> he told me one time I was at another church that we first went to when we went to Oregon. And he was telling me at the time, he says, he took me in a building that was being built and constructed. And he says, see, if you're going to have a church, you have to have a church and you have to big, build it bigger than the amount of people you expect. <clears throat> and, you know, it's kind of, I was thinking as he said, this, this is kind of like the fill of dreams. <laughs> if, if, you, if, if you build it, they'll come. <laughs> but that's the kind of mindset. And there's a strategy to how to attract people and how to grow churches and, um, and how you appeal to them. And a lot of it, people think, is just a cutting, age of, uh, cutting edge of what is new and what makes the church function. And all it's the cutting edge of is the same old thing. It's nothing new at all. <laughs>